All right, well, good evening, everyone. It's a pleasure to be able to greet you here and a pleasure to be able to introduce you to our guests, Eric Schmidt, the executive chairman of Google, and Jared Cohen, the director of Google Ideas. Uh, this is a conversation, and the idea is that it starts out as a conversation amongst us on stage, but very quickly becomes a conversation with you. And the theme of the conversation is the new digital age, the title of the new book by Eric Schmidt and Jared Cohen, but also each and every one of the many issues taken up in the book. So this is meant to be a free-flowing, wide-ranging conversation. The theme of the book, I'll say by way of introduction, is um, really it's what's happening in the world and what's happening as a new set of digital networks are overlaid on and often transform the existing ways in which the physical world and the social and institutional world are organized for us. The book um, doesn't shy away from predictions. It makes a strong series of accounts of what's going to happen. What will the state of the future be like? What will identity be like in the future? Indeed, what will reconstruction after natural or other disasters be like in the future? And so it opens up a number of questions centered on the virtual organization of activity and how it relates with physical and face-to-face -face worlds, but not limited to that, really extending into um, a number of other areas, a number of other thoughts. So let me ask a question, if I can, just to get started with this. Uh, one of the first themes in the book is a transformation of identity and the way in which, as you suggest, identity will become increasingly a commodity and something that exists first and foremost online, not first and foremost in the physical person or the local community. Could you say a little bit more for us about but what that means to think of first as a commodity and second as something that's mainly online? Well, let me start by saying thanks, thanks to you, thanks to, thanks to the LSE for, for letting us come. We wanted to come here because you all represent the most global of the universities in Britain, as best I can tell. And I think in many ways you reflect the goal that we set out in the book, which is to talk about the whole world and not just the developed world. We started, we didn't quite have an attitude about this. And as we sort of, and sometimes when you write things, you eventually come to an outcome. And our outcome was that the most interesting thing was in fact the arrival of another five billion people online and the empowerment and so forth that it, uh, that it implies. Now, Jared, you, you argued pretty strongly when we started this that this, this interaction between physical and digital identity would um, change quite a bit. And you make the core argument, two arguments really, that you'll have multiple identities and that your identity begins at birth and gets less and less under your control. Of course, we also say it begins at minus six months because people are putting their sonograms online, which both of us agree is weird, and you all should as well. Well, Jared is extremely concerned that you should not have a digital identity before you have a physical identity. <laughs> I also believe my, my sister has a, has a one-month-old, and I, I, I see the one-month-old squinting and burping, and to me, that's consent. So at that point, she can post photos online, but not, not before. Do you really believe that? I just came up with it, so I haven't decided yet. Okay. Please, well, why don't you ask the, ask the question? I think there was an actual question here. So the, 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 the question, of course, was about identity, and Eric talked a little bit about, you know, think about how many people 
you meet in the physical world, the number of people that will interact with you online and come to know about you online will be significantly larger. In the book, we take a pretty harsh tone against dictators, which is good, and again, you all should do that as well. Um, we make anyone questioning this pro-dictator? That's right. No, Raise okay. your fan if you're in favor of dictators. And if you are, we'll talk to you after. <laughs> Um, we, we make the argument not just that individuals in the future will have multiple identities and personalities online, but in fact, we argue in some cases they'll have split personalities online. And what do we mean by this? Let's take a particularly bad dictatorship that's about to have an election next month, the Islamic Republic of Iran. In Iran, there's 72 million people physically populating the country. Uh, that will probably change a tiny bit, but for purposes of argument, let's say in the future, still 72 million people. So then you ask, what's changed? Well, what's changed is everybody has access to the internet, everybody has access to mobile technology, and every one of those citizens has multiple email accounts, multiple chatting services, multiple social networking profiles. They have their business identity, their rogue identity, their socially deviant identity, you know, their sort of pro-regime identity, their anti-regime identity. And so the reason this is a problem for a dictatorship like that in Tehran is online the population looks closer to 500 million. So you have 500 million voices coming from 72 million people, and for a regime that you know, sort of prides itself on surveillance and monitoring, all of a sudden the task becomes much more significant. And they make mistakes, they overreact, they underreact, under et cetera. So when you talk about identity being a commodity, who owns it? Who owns these identities? Are they owned by the people who control their electronic representations somewhere? Do individuals have any ability to recoup and claim and say, no, that's mine? Well, Google recently announced that after you die, you can provision for what happens to your digital identity. Okay. That was our step in diplomacy in this care. So afterlife diplomacy, this is good. <laughs> and, and all of that. Um, no, but I think I, digital identity as a concept is still a new one. Mm-hmm. So we write in the book that uh, as, as people put more and more stuff on the digital world, if you become imprisoned, the judge will probably imprison your digital identity too. And while we're on the topic of prisons, you know, one of the things that Eric and, I, Eric and I have observed in our travels is just how robust smuggling is into prisons. So in Afghanistan, we, uh, we encountered these uh, Taliban ringleaders of various attacks that had taken place outside of the prison walls who had smartphones. Um, we heard stories about people firing SIM cards uh, over the prison walls in Brazil via a bow and arrow, and it worked until the arrow struck the prison guard. So, so the, the sort of creativity of smuggling isn't going to stop. So one of the arguments we make in the book, and we're not advocating one way or, the another, or another, is that if you're going to physically incarcerate somebody, you may also have to incarcerate their identity online. Um, so if you're essentially going to... Which gonna, would presumably give it its legal standing. So somebody will try to do that at some point. All right, interesting. And the book covers lots and lots of different issues, as I already was, was signaling. One thing I was... Uh, surprised by was that there wasn't a more discussion of commerce and corporations. That there's a discussion of the state and what would happen to the state. Do you see uh, business corporations, Google itself, as a major part of this new digital age? Well, I hope so. Uh, that's what, we, what we're trying to do. It's important to remember that there are limits to the power of corporations. Um, and that ultimately, corporations operate under the physical laws um, as defined by the countries that they operate in. And ultimately, if the government doesn't like you, the government can take your employees, imprison them, or worse, uh, or in fact cause the companies to be broken up and so forth. So you have to be very careful. Uh, 
Um, in many of the countries we, we, we look at, we decide whether we're going to put employees in those countries because we never know if we're going to have a fight with the government over open access mm. to information. What's your, do you have a bet on the uh, resolution to this fight in a global sense? That is, on the one hand, we have various regimes of censorship, and as you point out, some of those seem very seamless, as in China, where a combination of language and lack of prior familiarity makes it easier for people to, in a sense, continue not to know what's going on in some circumstances. In other cases, you point out that uh, the tendency is for information to cross boundaries unexpectedly, for it to be more available, for censorship to be uh, deeper. Do you have a, a bet on the overall balance of um, wider, more fluid circulation or capacities to restrict and channel, whether by language or by community? Well, of course, we have quite a bit of on, on this in the book. I would say a couple of things. First, you won't see the creation of completely censored states anymore. It's essentially impossible to create a new country that has no internet access. So people who are trying to restrict communication and information, which we are obviously very strongly opposed to, will do it by simple omission. If you don't know what you're missing, right, you don't know that it was censored. And they'll do their very best to make sure that you don't know that some part of religious opposition or political opposition was omitted. Uh, China, for example, does that, and we think this is terrible, which is why we moved out of China. Um, the tools for that will get better, but the tools to get around it will also get better. So in that sense, it's a real, a real mm. fight. I think that's sort of one, one comment. I think the second thing is that it's going to be impossible to completely keep information out. And especially, and by the way, there is some information that's actually quite harmful. So for example, if someone not here at the LSE invented something that would kill a million people, it's probably in the society's interest to not allow that online to be taken by you know, evil people. And yet, the fact of the matter is that once published, information is, is generally available. And we point out in the book that there's no delete button. And so um, my current favorite example is this guy who thought he was performing a public service, or he's just an idiot, your choice, where he published a, uh, a recipe for how to make, a, using 3D printing, a plastic gun that's relatively undiscoverable by x-ray machines. The US government managed to get this thing offline, but the copies are everywhere. People will die because of this guy's, in my view, reckless act to publish this information. Now, I'm not suggesting it's a criminal act. I'm just suggesting that people will die as a result of his action. Not a good thing to have done. Not a very smart move. And, and in, in your question is, is also this, this, this uh, sort of speculation about which types of regimes survive in the, in the future. And again, we talk about this extensively in the book, and there's two points that I'll, that I'll make. One is we talk about uh, essentially how as the world's autocracies come online, remember most of the world's autocracies are also countries that are still not yet connected, sub-Saharan Africa, Central Asia, uh, certain parts of the, the, the Middle East, etc., um, as these autocracies come online, the ones that will be able to build the modern-day super-surveillance state with all of the expensive and difficult-to-obtain surveillance technology will be those that have some, something to trade for it. So we're familiar with this notion of uh, natural wealth and minerals in exchange for weapons and tanks and, uh, and, and airplanes. In the future, there'll be a minerals for surveillance technology and kind of the cyber world's uh, uh, sort of version of an arms for natural resources trade. The, the second point that we'll make is 57% of the world's population lives under some kind of an autocratic regime, uh, and most of the world's technological infrastructure in these environments still has not yet been built. 
So in the book, we talk about a future cyber cold war between states who have the companies who have the ability to build out this infrastructure. And there's only so many of them. So it's a question of who gets there first. Will it be Chinese spheres of cyber influence in sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia? Or will it be, for instance, you know, European companies or American companies that are building it based on sort of openness and, and freedom? Yeah, that's interesting. How about not political versions? One of the things you talk about is a balkanization of the Internet on the mixture of language lines or sometimes religious or other kinds of, of uh, <coughs> movements and orientations. Do you think the Internet and the, the digital age will remain balkanized in important ways? Will it be split into different communities that communicate really imperfectly with each other where information stays inside one sphere of influence? Well, the, the argument that we make in the book is states will naturally try to replicate the laws of the physical world in cyberspace. And if they thought it was difficult to implement the law in the physical world, it's much harder in cyberspace, where you not only have you know, more virtual citizens, but a bunch of transnational meddlers, which is what we, we, we call everybody else. Uh, we describe cyberspace as the world's largest ungoverned space. And the natural reaction if states can't replicate their laws in cyberspace is to balkanize the internet. And we don't mean carve it out into separate internets. It's that you know, filtering or omission that, that, that Eric mentioned. And should this happen, and we hope it doesn't, and we all need to fight very hard to prevent it, the fear is you could have things emer situations emerging where states band together to edit the web in collaboration. You can imagine an autocratic cyber union. Or you can imagine Iran, Syria, Iraq, and Turkey getting together and essentially filtering the Kurds off of the internet. You know, this type of digital ethnic cleansing could actually take place in a balkanized era. Well, and furthermore, in addition to filtering, let's say, again, I'm not proposing this, but imagine you don't like the Kurds, we'll just give them a slow internet connection. We'll discriminate against them in bandwidth, right? Has a significant impact on the development of their culture, economic opportunity, education, and so forth. Obviously not a good thing. I wanted to ask about one thing that, at least in my looking through the book, I didn't see stress, but I'm curious about, in my sense, which is the relationship between digital content that is organized as data, that is um, structured so that it's calculable and in many ways implicitly governable in a variety of, of regimes, whether it's price data or surveillance data or whatever else it is, and the varieties of content that... Um, our data in the loosest sense, which information is there, but they're not organized in a calculable fashion, and they may be of uh, more or less expressive content, maybe frivolous in purpose. Like, here's a record of our um, flash mob, and we got together and sang a song in a um, shopping mall or whatever. Um, do you see all of this as having a, a kind of essentially similar status as cognitive content on the web, all searchable, all approachable in the same ways? Or do you see... Um, an issue here where the uh, states, corporations, and others are engaged in codifying some of this data, making it searchable, making it accessible in certain ways, while other parts of it is less accessible, and does that matter? I think the computer science answer would be no. In other words, your, it's question, all data, it's all your, data. your question doesn't compute to a computer okay. science person. Sorry. I've had that problem the, before. Uh, <laughs> and what happens is a computer scientist looks at that and says, it's just data, and we'll organize it in some way intuitively. So here's an example, and I was really always struck by this. How did all this information get into companies like Google way back when? Well, many of the companies did something called screen scraping, where you would simulate a human, and you would fill out the forms, and then you would read the results. And computers were quite good at that. 
And so the people on the other side were either incapable of providing a structured data or hadn't mm -hmm. thought about it or the standards didn't exist, and yet we, the industry, not necessarily Google, structure the data for them. So I think, that the, I think the way to think about this is that over the development of computer science over the next five to ten years, computer science will be able to organize information in ways that make sense to computers and machine <coughs> intelligence, yeah. and that you have to sort of decide your attitude about this. We've taken the position as a company that more data is good, more transparency is good, and in particular with governments, that governments have this opacity of what they're doing. You can never quite figure out where's the money going, which division is doing what, are they really working, and so forth. So if you move to an open transparency model for government, which indeed the, the David Cameron government did as one of its first actions is try to force that here within the UK, has a huge impact. My guess is that for most of you who are from most of the countries represented in this room, that nobody has any idea what the government is actually doing in your countries. Right? You don't really have transparency about where the money is going, what the outcomes are, and so forth, and the data that they do produce is self-serving. It's very, very hard to get to a point of true transparency. The only way I know of to do it is to take this approach, mm -hmm. right? figure out a way to get the data. We'll be in charge of taking it, structured or unstructured, and let the people who are not the government figure out how to use that to figure out what's really going on. Well, there'll be various forms of reductions. We have MapReduce or something like that. So there'll be various ways of reducing the, the plenitude of apparent information into different forms of more usable access. And, and so some kind of reduction will take place. And at the same time, there will still be people who are collecting data by having forms filled in, including online forms, sure. um, in much more structured forms. So I'm wondering in part whether two things are happening at once. This massive, apparently free accumulation of lots and lots of data, which you can take in, which people can look for in different ways and use in different ways, but also a um, continued proliferation and perhaps increased proliferation of highly structured data well, I, collection. The good news is I think you've now introduced this sort of astounding fact that in two days now we generate as much data as was generated by humanity between the inception of humanity in 2002. Two days, right, for precisely the reason that you articulated. I, I, don't, I don't see the distinction as important. I, the computers will adapt. Okay, my, my, my concern about it, I won't belabor the point more, is how... Um, the use will adapt, and what will whether there will be bifurcation, how states will adapt, how markets will adapt, how various well, other a lot of it. A lot of it. Well, the first question would be how transparent is it, and then the second is it is how does the political system work? Um, one of the consequences of open and transparent government is that lobbyist and special interest can. Uh, the basic problem in government is you have uh, citizens who are highly optimized about one one thing and don't care about anything else. So a well-funded pressure group can use this new transparency to get an outsized voice. So, so it's perfectly possible mm -hmm. that the systems get noisier mm -hmm. as a result of all of this information by virtue of well-funded advocates who may, in fact, be motivated to lie about the data that the government... And, and my answer this to that is... This does sound possible. It does absolutely yeah. <laughs> sound possible. It's certainly what I see in America now and perhaps here as well. And the simple answer, the simple answer from my perspective there is, welcome to democracy. It's noisy. What, there, there is also, you know, to sort of shift this slightly to the, the geopolitical uh, context, think about all the criminals in the world, all the violent extremists in the world, all the people who essentially, either in an organized fashion or as lone wolves, seek to disrupt the international system. 
It's very difficult in the future to imagine a terrorist operating in the caves of Tora Bora and being even remotely relevant. It's very difficult to imagine narco traffickers, human traffickers, all of these people you know, running their, their illicit businesses without using mobile devices and, uh, and without being online. They'll obviously try to be very careful. I would argue that, and we argue extensively in the book, that it's very good to enter into an era where terrorists are opting in to using technology. Because what that does is it increases the likelihood of mistakes. Um, and one thing we know about terrorists is they've always been young. Um, they've always done really bad things. And there's a long tradition of young people making mistakes. So the game changer there is if they're using technology and they're making mistakes with a digital trail, the likelihood of being able to catch them uh, planning an attack before they uh, orchestrate it uh, increases. And then if they get to a point, as they did in Boston, where they conduct the attack, an entire population of people has the ability to press rewind, which we've seen in your society with, you know, here in, in London with CCTV cameras. We've seen in Boston, but you know, this is also going to be true in the Pakistans and Afghanistans of the world as well. And it, of course, polices a lot of things besides terrorist actions as well. Well, my favorite one is the one that happened last week. How many of you, by show of hands, heard about this, uh, this $45 million uh, ATM heist worldwide? Okay, so for those of you that didn't, because I think probably half the hands went up, um, uh, organized criminals teamed up with uh, a group of hackers and robbed thousands of ATM machines in dozens and dozens of countries throughout the world for $45 million, literally in a matter of a couple hours. It was like the speediest, like, most diversified you know, ATM heist in, in history. And so you might think to yourself, wow, that's really bad. Technology made it so they could be more efficient. Except for one problem. They needed physical street criminals to go to the ATMs and actually take the cash out. And the street criminals made, you know, they sort of weren't necessarily the smartest people in the world. They weren't as, you know, careful and invisible as hackers and big transnational organized criminals. And what did they do? They Instagrammed themselves celebrating with the cash. <laughs> and what do we know about Instagram? You know, it can show your geolocation. And, and that's the situation. Well, come on, we have the better story. Mr. Norton. Who, oh, I like that one, yeah. Yeah, this is the fellow who, who founded one of the great companies of the 1980s who should know better was suspected of murder of his next-door neighbor. Obviously, I don't know whether that's really true or not. He goes on the lamb, and he decides to publicize his, his lamb. McAfee, excuse me. We, we like uh, Martin. Yeah. I got the name wrong, sorry. I was thinking of the other antivirus. Thank you. Uh, so Mr. McAfee sort of goes on the lamb, right, and he ends up at the pool with the vice crew following him, and he shows a picture of himself in his bathing suit at the pool, and they post this on, I believe it was a TwitPic in Twitter. And within about one second, some people had di uh, diagnosed the metadata, which has, in fact, your GPS position, and it was identified. So they're smart enough to take the picture down within three seconds. But at that point, the information is already out. And the, the great story, this was in the country, I believe, of Guatemala. I get the facts wrong. I get the name wrong, too. Uh, no, 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 the crime was in Belize, but he was in a different country. So what happens is that they, they, they basically sit there and what to do with this guy. So they ultimately concluded that he has entered the country illegally and they sent him back to Miami, which is by far the best thing that could ever happen to him. And so he shows up broke and without his digital coordinates in Miami. So my point is that if you're on the lam, don't take a picture of yourself. You all got that message. But or at this, least turn off the geopositioning if you're trying to evade <laughs> the authorities. There, there actually, sorry, one more point on this, because there, there is a, another piece of this narrative, which is you know, we've talked about you know, uh, when, when they opt in, the likelihood of mistakes uh, going up and, and leading to them getting caught. But the point to make is they either have to make a mistake professionally or socially. 
And these young criminals and violent extremists are very careful professionally, but they're much more careless socially. And our favorite example of this, to add a third one, because the audience seems to like these, um, <laughs> we were interviewing a group of Navy SEALs who had participated in the Bin Laden raid. And they told us a story about a senior Al-Qaeda commander who was all of 24 or 25 years old in Pakistan that they'd been tracking for a number of years. And they lost track of him. He'd gotten very good at switching out SIM cards, switching out phones, never talking on the same device for more than a short period of time. Um, and they lost track of him for, for a couple of years. And then he popped back up on the grid because he got a phone and had a 45-minute conversation with his cousin about how excited he was to attend his wedding in Afghanistan, thinking that just because it was a social conversation, not a professional conversation, he didn't have to be as careful. And they ended up getting him, and they got his SIM card, and they were able to track down a number of people in his network. Yeah. And by the way, if you think about it, if you get arrested, what's the first thing the police are going to do? They're going to go through your phone, right? Because that's your network. Sure. That's your network of presumed colleagues. In this horrendous Boston bombing, one of the most important things that the authorities were, were, were the Macintosh that was used by the student that was still alive, which they did recover, which presumably has all of the activities and so forth that we used against This, this is not revealing a tension between Google and Apple here. No, 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 no. Okay. no, 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 no. The, um, so there's a, an issue around crime or around terrorism about the uh, unintended transparency of lots of things. Are people also facing a um, reduced boundary between public and private life? Do you think there are going to be ways of fighting uh, to preserve a realm of privacy? And what would that be? Well, it's interesting that you use that language um, because we, we sort of came to the conclusion that you need to fight for your privacy or you'll lose it. Right? But these systems naturally collect data right, for one reason or another. And there are legitimate reasons why public safety or other things would want this. We went, we visited in Mexico. Is it called Plataforma? Plataforma. Plataforma. Yeah. And this is a, because of the terrible, terrible drug situation there, they have now built a surveillance system, which essentially means that when they do a traffic stop, they don't really have driver's license and identity cards the way a lot of European and the U.S. structure works. Um, they can basically figure out who this person is and who their associates are in a nanosecond and make radio to what to do with this person. And so you look at this and you go, technologically, it's incredibly impressive, okay? So what happens when the drug war is over and the system is in place? Does that country have the traditions of uh, independent courts, courts, individual rights, um, you know, privacy rights, and so forth that will allow it not to be misused by a future government? You just don't know. The other point on, on, on the privacy issues, when we sat down to write the book, we basically made a decision that we wanted to look at how people understand this issue of privacy, not just in the parts of the world where 2 billion people are already online, but parts of the world where the next 5 billion people are online. So, you know, North Korea, Libya, Tunisia, Myanmar, you know, some really sort of tough places. And what we found in those environments is they don't talk about privacy, they talk about security. And so we came back with this strong sense that the two are completely intertwined, and we have to talk about them as, as one, uh, one set of issues. Now, the argument that we make in the book, and we make several about how to address this, one is uh, an increased role for parents. So whether you're in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, London, New York, or Jakarta, you know, every parent in those environments can relate to this fact of young kids coming online faster and younger than their physical maturation process and being like, reasonably freaked out by this. For those of you who are, that are parents in the room, you, you understand exactly what I mean. Um, so if you're a parent in a democracy that is you know, sexually liberal, for lack of a better way of putting it, you want to talk to your kids about the importance of data permanence years before you have the sex talk, because it's going to be relevant years before talking about the birds and bees is even you know, remotely comprehensible. 
Or in a place like Saudi Arabia, you could imagine a young girl uh, online using social networking, using chatting, and you know, let's say she's you know, 11 years old. Um, imagine her saying and doing things online that at the time might not matter, but 10 years from now could, ser could essentially serve as a digital scarlet letter that would follow her around for the rest of her life and have real-world implications. So parents at a very young age are going to have to talk to that young girl about the very unfair and unjust laws that discriminate against women in Saudi Arabia and some of the norms, and these things are all going to have to happen you know, at least several years before they normally would have talked to them about. So there's an increasingly robust role for parents to play. What we don't know, and this is sort of a call to action for everybody here and reading the book, is we don't know what that conversation sounds like. You know, we need to spark a real global conversation between parents around how to actually talk to your kids about this. All right. I think in this uh, era of uh, data permanency, we're going to invite some people to make their um, permanent but also immediate comments and get some questions here. Um, let me remind you that there are stewards in red shirts who will bring microphones to you, invite you to say who you are for the permanent record, and um, uh, ask your questions now. There's a gentleman in a white shirt right in the middle. And the microphone's coming from behind you. Uh, David Wood, London Futurists. Can the new digital technology help the problems of government to help people feel less alienated from our politicians and to help uh, also international governments so that uh, we avoid the issues that governments aren't able to collectively uh, and usefully address global issues such as climate change? A lot depends. I, I think the answer is it's going to be a mixed answer, and a lot depends on the culture of the society. Um, I worry that in many ways access to all this information has made it worse because people are not quite sure who's telling the truth or not. So in America we have this bizarre debate over climate change as though there is a scientific debate. And yet you can always find a crackpot or two that will be on your side. And because, because the media has to show two choices, right, it makes it look like there's a debate, which there really isn't. So, so I think the first question is politicians are likely to exploit that to their, Im to their image. It will be harder for politicians to actually lie about things because there will be services which will, rough, roughly speaking, listen to what they say and compare that to facts and what they've said before. But politicians will, over time, and I mean this as a general statement, get better at not lying but fibbing, right, if, if there's a distinction. You know, they, they'll sort of they'll make statements which sound plausible by omission as opposed to by, you know, by, by factual error. So the good news, I think, is that you as a citizen will be able to verify things on your own. So my sort of simple rule about this is that I don't think the political systems will change very much, but the citizens have an opportunity to change things a lot. Because historically, the sort of we trusted our government, they did the right thing or the wrong thing, now you can check. And that's a genuine change, and one which I think has a lot of implications. Um, my best example here is the Weibo example in China. China, of course, censored everything. They have 30,000 or more censors censoring on the social networks. Including this, your visit. I know. The last time I was there, it sort of disappeared. First time I ever disappeared from a country after I left. Um, <laughs> and it's okay. It didn't hurt, it didn't hurt my feelings. Um, so, so they have all these censors on Weibo, and so they have the train crash. We talk about this in the book. Where they bury the trains, all terrible. And they try to cover it up. And then the movement starts, and eventually it embarrasses the government, and eventually it's discovered that the guy running the train was in fact uh, corrupt and he's now under a death sentence. 
So that's an example where even in China, right, you can't lie that much to your citizens anymore. They have that much power. And that's revolutionary there, for example. Go ahead. How about man the blue shirt in the front row of the balcony? Thank you very much. Um, Alberto Ligi of uh, Maximum Philanthropic Benefit. I'm just curious, um, if we want to protect the openness of the Internet going forward, and I'm not just talking about two-year horizon, but five, ten, twenty years, what is it that we can do, what we can do in this room? Is it a question for, uh, to be addressed by advocacy groups? Is it a question to be addressed by firms such as Google who control technology to a great extent? What is it that we can do right now to start steering things in the right direction so that we prevent governments from encroaching and censoring the Internet going forward? So, thank you. I think it gets back to extolling the virtues of an open and free Internet. It's so easy to convince yourself that an open and free Internet is, is not such a good idea. So you have to have the fortitude to believe in free speech and individual empowerment and so forth. There's lots of things governments can do. Uh, more broad access to broadband, liberalizing telecom regulation, you know, trying to get more and more people online. There are plenty of countries where the, the majority of their content is still not online historic records, what the government is doing, and so forth. And you know, when we were in Burma, you, you actually said, in this sort of your line, that the generals decided to open up Burma, but the Internet guarantees it can't be closed again. Once you get it, it's almost impossible to take it away. So I would argue that these sort of changes, they're cumulative and they can't go back at some basic level. And I would add also, because I think in some respects your question is about, you know, how does altruism change in the future, right? My, my guess is many of you in this room are reasonably altruistic, and I think that there's large numbers of human beings that are altruistic in every society. So you ask again, what's, what's changed? What's changed is naturally altruistic people are becoming more technical. Uh, you know, they may not be computer scientists, but they're certainly, you know, savvier with technology than the generations before them. And then two... Uh, you know, altruistic citizens have greater visibility into the world's problems than at any other time in history. So there's just more work to go around. There's more ways to help. One of my favorite examples is I remember when Raul Castro uh, allowed for mobile devices in Cuba, he thought that he was particularly savvy because he said, you know what, I'll say that mobile devices are allowed, but I'm going to make them so expensive to top up that nobody can afford them. And so what happened, a group of uh, young Americans in Ohio, of all places, right, very Cuban, um, uh, basically decided to create a program where they would top up the Cuban cell phones remotely. Really? I mean, this is a remarkable thing. Ohio? Uh, I forgot to tell you about this. We should, we should visit. <laughs> this is not in the book. It had nothing to do with the election. I forgot. To, yeah. You should have put it in the book, Jared. Well, <laughs> I, just, I, I just remembered it. Well, continue with your story. Write another book. I forgot where I was going with this. Okay, the point is altruism and people in Ohio who are apparently saints with respect to Cubans. Yes, okay, thank you. Yeah, so the larger point, so the larger point here is you, know, you have all of these creative people, and we live in an era where it's much easier to develop apps, and more people are you know, you know, using Android well, around the world as well, which is great. Uh, you, should, you should, too. Um, and so it's just getting easier to build for other people's problems in collaboration with them. And we're just, every day we learn about more and more examples of this. Uh, there's another example where um, you have a, actually a former, I think a former Google employee of Burmese descent went back to 
you know, Burma or Myanmar, we get confused because it depends who you're talking to. Um, so we always say both. Um, is literally working with local communities there to build peer-to-peer -peer offline uh, ecosystems. So again, there, there's countless examples of these. They're just not as fun as the Cuba one. <laughs> okay, Richard, from the man in the second row. Richard Sangatti. Cool. Uh, my name is Richard. I'm a student and a governor here at LSE. And I was also what, fortunate what does, enough what does to be. What does governor mean? So on the course of governors, so we helped to um, set the direction and vision for the school, make sure you, it's doing so great. One of my bosses. So you're in charge. Excellent. <laughs> and I was also fortunate enough to have been one of the 12 young people from across the globe that you invited to your Zeitgeist conference back in 2011. Uh, but my question, it essentially centers around the notion that my generation's very much grown up as public being almost a default, and we've got digital footprints that we, you know, we develop and we can't really delete easily. Sorry. Yeah. All those pictures of you drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'd just like to know, as possibly, as arguably, you know, the largest facilitator of the internet, what role do you feel that you have in helping, you know, my generation, uh, say, perhaps improve those digital footprints? Well, I think that we talk about this extensively in the book, and I think the first thing for you to understand is being more connected doesn't absolve you of responsibility for good judgment. You're telling him this now? <laughs> he, uh, I, He's I, very intelligent. I, I, think, I think that he probably did not sort of do all the bad things that many other people did in the past, so I'm talking to him as an upstanding citizen. Yes, sir. Um, so you can be a, a, a voice then for telling people to exercise good judgment. And you know, a way to think about this is think about cyberbullying, which is a, obviously a very common problem in schools. You know, there's a natural human instinct to do and say things online that you would never do to people in the physical world. I don't understand the sort of psychology behind it. I'm sure there's some psychologists in the room who, who can educate us. You know, a student might not go up to somebody and punch them in the face, but they'll do the digital equivalent. Right? And that's bad judgment. You, know, you do that enough, that follows you around for the rest of your life. Um, and so that's, you know, it's still a huge, you know, judgment is a human thing. Computers aren't going to sort of annex all of our, all of our responsibilities. Um, it is likely that you'll see ecosystems of reputational management, you know, firms start to, to, to pop up, but they'll be expensive and imperfect and, you know, sort of not that effective. You know, ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, we all still have to behave ourselves in the future. Um, what I do worry about, however, is, you know, for young people, there's a whole generation of us who put stupid things about ourselves online, you know, when we were in high school, and none of us want to run for office. Uh, and there's literally going to be, like, a wave of casualties of people who have to drop out of races because of stupid things that they put online. Um, and, you know, over time, the norms will change, and people will say, you know what, we don't care if you put stupid things about yourselves online as long as it was before the age of, like, 22. <laughs> okay. Got a man in a dark shirt in the, near the front of the, that side of the balcony. Thank you. Uh, my name is Leo. I'm, I'm a master's student in information systems here at LSE. Um, and I wanted to ask you a question about the way Google is structured. Um, what methods or sort of organizational processes do you have in place to help foster innovations? You know, Google is sort of famously disorganized with respect to the creative process. Um, very much like a graduate school, and it, it just works really well. You work very hard to select the sharpest people you can in an area, and you try to give them as much, as much freedom as possible. We have a general rule known as the 20% time rule, which allows you to spend 20% of your time on whatever you're interested in, and many of the best ideas have come through that process. There's obviously a limit to that. So you need management that's smart enough and capable enough to see those as opportunities, and we're not perfect at it. 
But I think that it's really a series of steps. Uh, it's the focus on recruiting of a particular kind of person. It's the feeling that they have when they're in the firm that they can really innovate. It's a track record of innovation. And it's also the ability to fail and to learn from mistakes and also the fact that we have a reasonably stable revenue stream so we can make, you know, we can make run experiments and take bets that are long-term. Okay, let's go over the other side of the balcony about halfway up. This gentleman, raise your hand. I was just wondering if you go there. No, there are glasses. Wearing glasses. I can't see if that's green or brown jacket. Thank you. I'm Giles Bailey. I'm a management consultant. I'm, I'm very interested in that debate you were explaining about the 3D printing and the gun that happened in America. But particularly going forward, how and who, particularly in a globalized sense, do we decide what is appropriate to put online? And particularly, is that a corporate decision or is that a governmental decision? And how do you start deciding things should be excluded from the internet because they're actually dangerous to wider society? Well, I would love to tell you that we had an algorithm that could say this particular piece of bits is you know, sufficiently dangerous that we're going to segregate it, we're going to look at it, we're going to have a big debate about it. Computer science is not at that point. So if you think about social networks and YouTube and so forth, where the information is hosted, most of them have community policing rules, which go something like you can put up anything you want, and then if somebody flags it, humans will look at it and say, hey, this is not appropriate for our brand or whatever, and take it down. Now, this, it, that in and of itself, which makes, makes perfect sense to me, does not make sense to some judges, for example, who have in various court cases around the world said that you have to pre-inspect content before it's uploaded, which, if that were true, would cause every single social networking site to collapse, right? Because there's just too much activity. Think about pre-approving every Twitter post, every Facebook post, every YouTube video. So the community policing model where, where you know, an alert citizen says, hey, that's bad, is probably the best way we have to do it. So that's, I think that's a reasonable answer. That's, in my view, that's how, that's, is how it should work. That's how Blogger works and, and YouTube works. So now we have a secondary problem, which is some evil person, no evil person in this room, manages to put content on a, public, on a website that they erect, because the internet allows that. And they're not governed by these other rules. There's no community to flag it. Well, what do you want to do about that? Do you want to sort of cut the IP address off of that? Do you want to sort of say, this is no man's land for information, these people are dangerous? So who gets to make that decision? Well, Google's not going to make that decision, because that sure sounds like censorship. So governments will struggle with this question. And in fairness to these governments that are having these debates, there are bad people who put really bad information that can really hurt people onto the internet. It would be great if we could prevent that, but we don't know how to. Right? And I think we're going to struggle with this for a long time because the percentage of uh, there's, there's, there's always another evil person being born. The good news is it's a tiny fraction of the birth, birth rate, but we haven't f- figured out what it caused that to be zero. Okay. Man in a sort of teal shirt towards the back of the lower level. Excellent color sets. Thank you. (laughs) Hi, my name is Corey Metzman, and I'm a master's student here at the LSE. And you will forever be known as the man in the teal shirt. (laughs) Thank you. With colors that we like. A master's student in in what? Um, 
Here I'm studying international development. International development, okay, thank you. My question is to what extent do you think that someone's online political identity or online political participation is a complement versus a substitute to their offline political participation? And some people have suggested that participating via Twitter or Facebook is, to some extent, a substitute to getting out in the street and having skin in the game. Given recent events around the world, to what extent do you think it's a compliment versus a substitute? That's, an, that's a really excellent question. Um, let, let's sort of walk through uh, the different types of uh, sort of dissent or opposition that can exist in a society that's connected. And let me begin by agreeing with you and saying I, I don't like this term cyber dissident because we're using it and applying it to everybody from people who are physically on the street risking their lives and online to people who are just, you know, tweeting a different revolution each day from, like, San Francisco or, you know, <laughs> so, there, there are these people. While, while drinking their latte. While, while, while drinking their latte in Berkeley, California. Um, so uh, uh, I realize I'm in London, so that joke might not translate. Um, but it's very important that we understand that the, the sort of the attribute or that the, they're calling somebody a dissident should be reserved for those who physically put themselves in harm, harm's way. And we shouldn't confuse that with people who are virtually courageous, right? So the way that this looks is you still have your dissidents on the street. Those are the ones who are, you know, at risk of getting shot, at risk of getting arrested. Um, they're sort of the face of opposition and the face of, of various revolutions. Um, then you have your people who we would describe in the book as virtually courageous. So these are the people who, they're still taking pretty enormous risk online. They're in the country. You know, their, their uh, IP address could be traced. You know, their computer could be infiltrated, all these different things. And they're saying very sort of anti-regime things or you know, various things that they could get arrested for. You know, in China, they don't, you know, if, if they, they want to talk to you, they tell you it's time to get tea. That, that's, how, that's how they preview this. Um, but then there's a third category, which we describe as uh, you know, sort of uh, transnational meddlers or virtual tourists. And these are everybody from, you know, again, the people who are tweeting different revolutions or posting di about different revolutions every single day um, to, to somebody. They're usually people outside of the country. And all of these people are relevant and helpful. The sort of the transnational meddlers you know, increase the size of the virtual crowd in the virtual town square. Um, the people who are virtually courageous help support the people who are on the streets. But at the end of the day, you, there was something in your question that's very true, which is in the future, we argue in the book that revolutions and opposition movements will be easier to start, but they'll be harder to finish. And the reason for that is technology isn't a substitute for leadership, and it's not a substitute for functioning institutions. And you need both of those two things in order to succeed in completing a revolution. So the old model was you became a leader after many decades of sort of suffering and trial and trials and tribulations, and then you became a public figure. This is the story with Mandela, with Lekwalesa, et cetera. Now we're seeing a new model where you have all of these heroes and celebrities of these revolutions. And some of them will get backfilled with leadership skills, and some of them won't. Um, but you still need both. You need public, uh, you need to be a public figure and you need to be a real leader in order to be able to actually complete one of these revolutions. We just may see the orders reversed. Okay, well I'm on a roll with colors. Purple sweater towards the back upstairs. Uh, hi, I'm, I'm Ruben. I'm part of a, a founding team of a, a website which is slightly smaller than yours. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> My, and my, it always will be if you don't tell us the name. I'm sorry, yeah, it's, 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 it's called Higher Space. You can Google it. Um, <laughs> but uh, but no, my, my, my question is, it, clearly the, the, the importance of, of, of ensuring freedom of access to the Internet is, 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 is well, it's hugely important in terms of the new digital age and ensuring, I suppose, government's commitment 
commitment to ensuring that is, is equally important. When does, when does Google start enforcing countries and governments to, 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 to have that freedom of access to the internet? And what does that enforcement look like? Well, the problem is that we always have this... At the end of the day, there's things that we could do that would provoke governments to make things worse. So you're always better off in a discussion. Classic example is Pakistan. Um, every few months, there's a video on YouTube that makes Pakistan upset. And so they declare that we are evil and that we need to take all our videos down the subject. We look at it, we decide we're not going to, then they ban YouTube from the country for months. Then somebody says, we're, it's really hurting us, then they turn it back on, and so forth. Now, in some sense, we're providing discipline to the country because they're, they really want this information, they can't get it because they have to take the whole place. The limit is when they can arrest our employees, you know, shoot missiles at us, that, that sort of thing. So there's, there's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important high-stakes game, but ultimately we can lose. Uh, China is the classic example where there are things that we could do that would make it much easier for the VPNs and so forth to work in China. Uh, various people have looked at this technically. Uh, the, the way you get around the Great Firewall in China, which is the blocking phenomenon that does the censorship, is you use these things called VPNs. There are technical solutions that we could use that would advance that, um, it would probably trigger a very bad reaction from the Chinese government, which would hurt Google in much more fundamental ways. Every time we think about it, we think about you know, each step and then what their counter-reaction is. And that's an example of a live fight. Okay. Let's uh, go downstairs this time. There's a woman in black. It's also a color in the very back <laughs> of the center. Hi, um, this is Zainab. Uh, I'm an MPhys student in uh, information systems. Uh, speaking, uh, speaking of commodification of uh, identity, what do you think about commodification of data, especially uh, considering uh, what big data offers uh, and the whole discourse about it, and considering Google's position uh, as, a, as a major holder of data and public data? I, I don't know what you mean by commoditization of data in that context. I mean... Um, uh, big data can be composed of uh, data that is that can be sold to other companies, whereas it can also be data coming from social networks or all the other publicly available data. So, so uh, sort of a general rule is that this data explosion will define your professional career. That there's been so much stuff, and there's so much more that's going to be coming out, and there. Are, Essentially, every business can be improved by software algorithms that mine and otherwise go through that data. Um, today, there's no commoditization of that. There's no, there's no central repositories for it and so forth. You could imagine that over time, a whole set of reporting bureaus could get created similar to the credit reporting bureaus, which were accurate sources of data that people could use. Uh, I don't think Google would do that. It's highly unlikely. But you could imagine such an outcome, uh, but it would be a long time from now. Okay. Man in a red shirt, a red sweater with a gray jacket over here. Um, yeah. Thank you. My name is Manuel Stas. I'm a fund manager. I invest in uh, frontier markets, places like Pakistan, investing shares 
directly there. My question is a very simple economics question. What does this, the, the advent of the mobile phone, uh, and which will be the connectors of the next five billion people to the internet, and this glut of creativity, um, and how, how will that raise productivity in those countries, and ultimately accelerate uh, poverty reduction, and hopefully help economic growth? We have come to the London School of Economics so that you can answer this question for us. <laughs> <laughs> it is, says economics in the title. And we, and we do like audience participation. So. <laughs> I, I read part of the book, and there's some, some uh, examples of con uh, Congolese uh, fisherwomen who, who just get more productive. Uh, there's an interesting TED Talk by the founder of Grameen Phone about yeah, this. There, there is amazing evidence that this stuff does increase productivity. Um, Google has funded and found a series of reports which roughly say that economic growth rate is double that of, in the base case, it's the economic growth rate is doubled with a high investment in broadband and mobile penetration, and that result is reasonably coherent across. So we would say that holding everything else constant, it appears that you significantly increase your economic growth rate with an aggressive, uh, an aggressive adoption of these things. There's a separate economics question, which is the, sort of the factor question, which is, in some, does productivity increase uh, by virtue of this? Because obviously there's displacement of other industries and so forth. Um, and the people who are on the losing side of, these, of, the, of the Internet phenomena, incumbent businesses and so forth, complain bitterly of job loss, re, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I always like to think of the, 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 if you use the Internet to make an, an economy or a government more efficient, well, the people who are opposed to that are the people who were making it inefficient, <laughs> who lost their jobs and who are displaced and are forced to change something new. Um, intuitively, it seems to me that we've had this debate for hundreds of years in society and that it's really a debate about innovation. There's a famous story here in Britain about the loom. And the loom in 1850 or whenever it was invented displaced a whole cohort of, of you know, non-loom uh, people who we we wove things, I guess. Um, and that generation was jobless, but the younger generation took on the new tool. So I don't want to minimize the negative impact of, of this. It's very significant dislocation by virtue of innovation, but aggregate productivity clearly goes up. And that's, that's I think, that what the data will show. Okay. There's a um, person in stripes. Not quite stripes. Yes, you in about the middle there. Thank you. Um, I'm Marilena, um, LSE alumna. I now work for Yahoo. Um, <laughs> uh, when I well, joined we sent our best employee over there. <laughs> <laughs> we sent Marissa, and she's doing well. I think so as well. Um, on my first week at Yahoo, um, I received a phone call on my desk. I picked up the phone, I said, hello, um, hi, it's the police here. Uh, we're looking for someone who owes a lot of money to the banks. Uh, we need your help. I'm like, all right. Uh, I work in yield management, by the way. <laughs> um, apparently, I had inherited the, uh, the desk extension of somebody who was a paralegal and had left the company. Uh, it's been a year and a half, and I have a lot of funny stories to share since then. Uh, my point is, uh, you've touched a lot on security and privacy online, and I can understand where and if uh, companies such as uh, Google or Yahoo can help. 
Uh, on the other hand, there's a lot of discussion on privacy of users online and on, on our everyday online journeys. Um, how, for example, someone might Google um, trip to New York and then get targeted with uh, an ad from British Airways with flights to New York. Or someone might send an email. Uh, I might email my mom saying, uh, hi mom, I'm thinking of buying a Nespresso machine. And then after a day, I might get targeted with a Nespresso ad. Um, what are your views on the cookie policy and what are your future plans? Uh, and how do you plan to align globally or regionally on this topic? Thank you. So, uh, an excellent question. Uh, a, a couple of... Uh, a couple of different questions inside your question. The first is that if uh, a very nice police person calls up uh, an empty desk at, at uh, Google, assuming we actually answered the phone, which is a separate discussion, uh, <laughs> we, would, we would refer them to our legal and compliance groups, and we would require um, a, a, a warrant, a judge, a legal proceeding before we collaborated. We found that that's the best way to keep this clean. So if there is, in fact, a, you know, a bad person and they're doing bad things, and if the country has a proper legal process, we will follow it, but only after we've satisfied ourselves that it's proper legal, ethical, and so forth and so on. And that's helped, and we, in fact, publish a report showing the aggregate number of such interactions. Um, the, the second part of your question had to do with the sort of the, the ad cookie policy. And one, we disclose what it is, and two, we have a a dashboard where you can control how it works. And finally, if you really don't like it, and I can't tell if you really don't like it or not, you can search anonymously. And in fact, the Chrome browser, which you should be using, <laughs> um, especially, uh, certainly at Yahoo, and especially if you're from Microsoft, um, <laughs> the, uh, the Chrome browser has an anonymous mode which allows you to avoid that. Um, my judgment, having lived in this for a long time, talked to people, I think this is a reasonable balance of interests. Right. So we disclose what we're doing. You get to control it. Uh, if you really are unhappy about it, you can default the other way. Okay, in bright blue in the second row. Hi, Rosina St. James, uh, an LSE student studying social policy and government and the chair of the British Youth Council. My question is about uh, kind of Google's idea about moonshot thinking. Uh, yesterday I was able to attend the uh, Big Tent event okay. um, and you had um, um, uh, somebody talking about moonshot thinking. My question is now, what is next for Google? We've had the uh, um, self-driving car, but... What is next for us? What this we going is, this to see? is the only question I can't answer. We would never <laughs> pre-announce our moonshots. We have to think of them. Sorry. <laughs> Leave us like that, can you? <laughs> well, I need somebody else wearing blue. Let's see. Okay. Hi. Um, hi, my name is Manik Sirtani. I'm a software engineer for Red Hat. Um, my question really is, it goes back to persistence of data, as you mentioned, and the permanence, if you will, of, of online data. Um, it's, it's not so much about the fact that data is persistent. It is about where it is persistent. Not so much in a geographical context, but perhaps in a corporate context. 
So, for example, if you're using Facebook, a lot of your Facebook data is persisted in Facebook's data centers. That's fine to a certain degree up until a government decides to lean on Facebook, which is just another corporate entity, to disclose all that data. And then suddenly you end up having privacy issues, identity issues. My question is about what are your thoughts around distributed data like that? And not just distributed, again, geographically, but distributed among different companies, distributed among different entities, different legal entities. Thank you. Well, indeed, companies understand this extremely well. And so the decision of where we put the data is highly influenced by the legal climate of the country we're operating. I don't think you can separate out the geographical thing. Because if you put a, country, if you put a, a data center in an Arab country, for example, where the laws are somewhat unclear about the distinction between various forms of protected content, well, that's one thing. Do the same thing in China. You'll discover that the laws of China around personal identifiable information are very, very different from that in the neighboring countries. Uh, we looked carefully at Malaysia as an example, sort of a hybrid model. Was that the right one or not? Think about whether you'd put one in India or Pakistan based on the differences in laws there. So, so you can't segregate the two. The fact of the matter is that, and I don't know what Facebook does, but Facebook, as part of its terms of service, says that they own all those photos you're uploading. Right? So once you upload those photos, you know, you're up to the sum of the good judgment of that firm and the governments that want to either steal, suppress, censor, or allow the photos that you've posted. If I may follow up. Um, so I, I guess what I'm looking for is, is there a real solution around that where data is not stored within any corporation at all? There, there are actually proposals, um, and these ha are problematic. There, um, as you know, since you work at Red Hat, um, there are basically ways to shard data or divide data so that no single server has all the data and that if you delete one server, the other servers can recreate it. So this goes back to this data permanence argument. So I'll give you an example. Uh, someone illegally and immorally and unethically loads up a movie that's uh, put up. It goes into these servers. A country properly and legally takes the server down because it's a violation of copyright. Right? But the other servers then recreate it. Right? And then they have to go take it down again and so forth and so on. This is a core technical issue that bedevils the copyright industry. I'm obviously not endorsing it by my framing of this. But you can see that that's an issue. Uh, when we visited with Julian Assange, which is described in the book, he talked at some length about how this structure could replicate and propagate data that could never be deleted, right, as an example. You can imagine the implications of that. A man in a tan sweater in the second row up here. Uh, good evening. My name's Edward Howland. I'm an LSE alumni. I'm also, unfortunately, a government official. I work for the Home Office. You'd be pleased to know this isn't about your tax arrangement, um, which hasn't been asked yet, which I'm it quite surprised. <laughs> um, on regard, regarding your book, on your respective trips to Baghdad, your book remarks that governments were dangerously behind the curve when it came to anticipating change and fearful of them too, and that they did not see the possibility these new tools presented for tackling what challenges that laid ahead. In my experience with the British government, as a government official, there seems to be a disparagency between what you preach and actually what you practice, unfortunately. Um, I work within a team that is charged with looking at utilizing these new tools in tackling the new challenges that lay ahead, and yet we've constantly been stymied by large technology companies, just as we Googled one of them, that due to the small consumer base that we represent, 
um, we, we're not really worthwhile um, talking to, unfortunately. Um, how do you ensure that private multinational companies can provide the best technology to the governments that is keen to look after its citizens to provide the best technology and services that their citizen expects, given our small commercial base? Thank you. Um, no, thank you for that. First, because I'm not familiar with the specifics. We'd have to talk offline about it. Google Glass. Uh, Google Glass. Well, Google Glass is not generally available yet. So, so it's, uh, everyone is complaining about lack of access to Google Glass. <laughs> background, I was in the developer meeting on Tuesday looking at proposals using it for um, certain government um, courses. Sure. I understand. The, <clears throat> so I, I make a couple of comments. Um, a leading government, a leading IT government strategy is going to have to have some of its own resources because the needs of governments are somewhat different from those of consumers and companies. That makes sense. Uh, I'm quite sure there's a, a good business to be made. It's not a business that Google is in in many ways. We tend to not do customized services. But I'm quite convinced that, um, for example, Britain, which I think is going to be one of the great leaders in e-government, you could imagine a, a serious... Um, I guess home office is the name for your internal government. Um, you could imagine a serious uh, set of engineers that worked for your organization and then a lot of companies that assisted them that you paid for their assistance to solve the problems of the citizens. And I think that that would be infinitely more cost-effective than the, than the inefficiencies that exist in the procurement of large, modern, mature democracies. And I look at the amounts of money that are going through government which are unmeasured, untargeted, you know, fleeced in one way or the other, um, and nobody can check. With these new systems, you can do that. So we're strong proponents of e-government um, for many, many reasons. Our technology will be used for some of it, but by no means in a large part. Let me, let me also add something to this. Um, Estonia represents... Is anyone here from Estonia? All right, so you guys are very cool. Um, no, no, I really, I really mean that. It, it's, it, Estonia represents an extraordinary change in how this is done. I mean, in the past, we, you know, if you look at foreign assistance and military assistance, it's always been government to government, and it's, always, it's typically been larger, more powerful governments to smaller, less powerful governments. Um, Estonia breaks that mold. It's a country of 1.3 million people with a tough Cold War legacy that has essentially emerged as a cyber power. Um, it does everything online. 25% of its citizens vote online. Uh, all of their medical records uh, and uh, various other records are online. They uh, give personal encryption uh, uh, keys to each citizen. They're talking with the Finns about having an interoperable system between the two countries uh, that will allow, you know, I'm an Estonian citizen and I'm in Finland and I need my uh, medical data. I'll be able to get it in uh, in Finland. So these are sort of extraordinary breakthroughs. The reason this is relevant is company, uh, countries like Estonia are developing various platforms and systems that they'll essentially work with larger governments or other governments around the world. And if you think I'm kidding, they're already in Libya, they're in Myanmar, they're in all of these countries where they don't even have embassies providing cybersecurity, helping them with e-government, uh, helping uh, sort of make the case for electronic voting and other things. And so this is starting to happen. It's not just a sort of private sector to government uh, you know, possibility. I think what we're trying to do is give you some career advice as our lone Estonian here in the audience. Yeah, go work for the government. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the very back upstairs. Keep your hand up so I can see you. Hello, my name uh, Edward Mooney and I work in uh, television and entertainment. Um, and I was wondering, given the uh, role from my background of uh, companies pushing for 
stronger protections in copyright and uh, in an intellectual property uh, regulations. What uh, threat do you see from corporations in, in the technology sector to innovation and protecting the status quo rather than bringing in the next generation of innovative companies? One of the problems with many industries, and I think the, the I'm going to use the word Hollywood as a general statement um, for the industry, is the sort of the Hollywood industry. There's an awful lot of lawyers who don't understand innovation, but they understand lawsuits. And so when they see something which threatens or and legitimately threatens, their instinct is to stop rather than allow for technology to come up with a solution. My favorite example is the Viacom lawsuit, which we've won now twice. Um, and along the way, during all the time that they've been suing us, we managed to build a content ID system, uh, which is quite a work of art. And basically, whenever anybody uploads, remember I said we can't police the stuff before, which is what the lawsuit's about. But the moment this thing is uploaded, we have technology now that can look at both the audio and the video track and say, hey, guys, this is a duplicate of a master, right? And then give the owner of that copyright a choice. You know, do you want it deleted? Do you want to substitute it? All very, very reasonable. And we do that for all of, all of the content owners, independent of whether there's a business between us. We do it as a favor. We think it sort of improves things. So what I hope will happen is it will see additional copyright solutions along those ways. At the moment, if you go back to my earlier example of an illegally uploaded video that's spread and that you, know, you can't keep getting it out, there is a way to stop that, which is to follow the money. Because although digital replication on servers, which is what we were discussing earlier in a number of questions, is very hard to stop, the money has to physically go somewhere. It has to go to a bank or an ATM machine. And it has to get laundered through some mechanism. And at the point at which this illegally uh, profits go through, you can follow the money. So my argument is that most of the problems that the industry is facing, uh, which are real, by the way, could be solved by a very aggressive follow-the-money approach for the people who are illegally profiting on the content of others. And that would do a lot, I think, to sort of structure this. We have a role to play. We've tried to change our algorithms to, to, uh, to lower the ranking of sites which are apparent copyright violators. And we're trying to do that. But ultimately, the solution, I think, is a follow-the-money approach. Okay. Gentleman in the back. Thank you. Uh, Zhao Jianfei from uh, China. I'm a student at, UC, at UCL. Uh, I'm sorry for your putting about uh, your business from China first. And uh, uh, you have mentioned uh, China and also some positive change that giving citizens more power to check on the government. Mm -hmm. But is that possible? Uh, another situation in countries like in China, as the government has so much resource and the technology, and also the physical force to control the, the country. And uh, they also can buy the technology from uh, uh, other countries and also they can adapt to change to the new situations. So uh, what are the real key weakness do you see in such kind of system? Thank you. Well, I start from the premise that the people in China are incredibly capable software engineers, computer scientists, very advanced in research. Uh, and again, the policy of the government, which is not necessarily the policy of the citizens, is this censorship policy. Even then, however, when we were in Beijing, uh, where the air was terrible, by the way, I mean, it's a tough situation, um, the, the, we were told story after story 
the people who were so upset about the environmental damage that they were willing to post real pictures of themselves and their children with real IP addresses, knowing that the secret police could come and arrest them for protesting because they were so upset what was happening to their children. So I think there's a limit to what China can do. If you're hurting the children of Chinese middle class, those Chinese middle class will fight back, and they'll fight back to the death. That's how strongly I think it, it is. And let me, let me add to, to what Eric said, and, and excuse me for being provocative. Um, I don't mean to be, but I'm going to be. Um, that, that means you are being. I was trying to sort of be confusing with the lead-up. Uh, so you have 1.3 uh, billion people in China. Again, to the provocative point, if I can generalize, they're, they're, uh, the 600 million who are already online are largely Han Chinese living in the urban areas. So if you think about the next 700 million people coming online in China, they're rural, they're economically impoverished, they're ethnically and religiously diverse. It's going to look very different from the first 600 million people coming online, who, who came online there. And so people often like to point to China and say, you know, China's the example of the modern-day super surveillance state that's figured this out. They know how to censor their population. You know, they sort of prove that citizens aren't going to be empowered um, you know, against the state. And the response to that, based on the trends that I just identified, are there's no government in the entire world, including China, that has been fully tested on this. And we had a very interesting interview with the Prime Minister of Singapore, where you know, even the Prime Minister of Singapore said to us that you know, something's got to change in China with all of this technology. And he's a computer scientist, right? So he actually knows what he's talking about. Um, and his analysis of it is, you know, for young people, it's always been the case that it's cool to speak out. With technology, they're able to do it much louder. Um, so again, you think about all of these rural populations and all of these urban populations finally being, you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, existing together in the online world. It, it's game changing. So again, so more than half the population is going to come online. We don't know what's going to happen. You would know much better than, than than we would, but it's certainly different than only half. Okay, we're getting close to the end. I have to warn you. Yeah, over towards the door. This man in the dark brown jacket. Hello, you know earlier you were talking about um, copyright and taking servers down if um, it's got copyrighted content on it. Isn't that a sort of censorship? And when does it come to who's in charge of um, is something bad on the internet should be removed? Who decides? Because to some countries it may not be bad and it shouldn't be removed. It should be up there because it's freedom of liberty. And For example, last year they took down Mega Upload, which to some people uh, was a bad thing. It looked as if America was policing the internet in a country where they had no jurisdictions to take down the servers. Um, so who, who should be the people controlling whether the servers should be taken down? Well, again, every country has some view on copyright protection. New Zealand, which is where Megalo Upload does, has a law about copyright violations, as does the UK. turns out there are differences. So copyright violations are handled differently in Europe and the UK than they are in the United States. So I think ultimately it's a legal matter. But we're, we're not arguing that information should always be copied and free and do whatever you want to it. There's clearly a notion of private ownership and copyright and so forth, which is important for the creative class. Okay. Gentleman in glasses with his hand up on near the aisle. Weird. Keep your hand up. Yes. You're starting to get creative with these descriptions. I'm trying, but every now and then they're lost. And so, no, 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 no. Thanks. Uh, good evening. Uh, my name is Nils Eitenay. I'm a master's in management student at the LSE. Um, since we are at the LSE, uh, another very small attempt at critically analyzing what you're presenting us. Um, 
you said that we all have a digital identity nowadays, which kind of implies that we also have um, a digital dimension to our personal freedom. What can you say or what would you reply to some people being uncomfortable with the idea that oligopolies like Facebook, Google, Microsoft, etc. would in a couple of years down the road limit our personal freedom online. And um, I think an economist would think that competition could prevent that from happening. However, the question is, aren't you already too powerful, too big um, to make that happen, to have competition preventing it from, from um, coming into existence? Well, at Google, we would argue that we have lots of competition. We spend all day with all, you know, this this startup, that startup. Our primary competitor in search is Microsoft, which has more employees, more cash, you know, more history than we more do. More lobbyists. More lobbyists, you know, you name it. <laughs> so I would just disagree with the too big argument. Uh, the history of tech is that companies that are too big very quickly find that they're too big in one area and they miss the next area, and then they become irrelevant. So, or, or they have a hard fall of some kind. So I, I, my general answer to this thing is that competition is how one should organize. We are, in fact, shockingly capitalist, which I suspect is what the LSE is about as well. There's no better... Partially. Partially. There's no sort of, no, you know, shockingly. I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not aware of a better way to organize capital flows than capitalism. That's why it says capital in it. Um, so... To, to me, it's pretty obvious that what you want to do is promote investment, promote innovation, um, and let it sort itself out. It would be suicide for the companies that you're describing to materially change and restrict the open data and open user policies. Why would you want to piss off all your users? It's much more likely the inverse, which is that governments will prevent them from doing what they would like to. It would be terrible for Google to lose every, any one customer because right, our whole model depends on adding more customers, getting them more excited about our services, and eventually selling them ads. So, so I can't resist asking a different question myself about a different non-capitalist sort of question. What role does, say, Burning Man and a gift economy of finding people who are doing creative hacking, doing interesting software, and sort of rewarding them play as distinct from forward investing? And so forth? Well... There are, there are small and very powerful positive examples of disc, a gift economies, open source, and so forth, where people who are egalitarian um, really do make the world a better place. Much of Google software is now given to the open community, which is then extended. Uh, Google itself is made on top of something called uh, Linux. And Linux, of course, was invented in um, Norway, basically. And um, it's a remarkable thing. Right? I worked in a company that lost, if you will, to the free version from the paid version. So I understand this in a very powerful way. I'll make an observation about Burning Man because I had never spent any time thinking about it. And then I came to Google two and a half years ago and people had like entire closets of Burning Man outfits and it's like all they talked about. Um, even Eric goes to Burning Man. But, but, but Jared, you have coats of British armor in your apartment. You think which presumably, which but is, that must be really uncomfortable is, at Burning which Man. Is presumably, which is presumably, I, I don't go to Burning Man, so that gives me <laughs> sort of the right to speak authoritatively about it. Clearly, ever since he went to Oxford, right, he's just obsessed with Britain. Well, <laughs> this is true, although I sort of became obsessed with the Tudors after watching the Showtime series and wish I had been more interested when I was here, but that's a whole separate weird discussion. Um, with regards to Burning Man, one of the sort of, you know, this is sort of a funny way to talk about it, but what do you have in Burning Man? You have a lot of smart technical people who go to Burning Man and have smart devices and there's no bandwidth there, at least from what I've been told anecdotally. So 
my sort of hope is that all of these smart technical people who get frustrated not being online for the three or four days that they're there will sort of recognize that this is also a similar problem that exists in the developing world. Right, and indeed there is a startup that has actually done that for Burning Man. It's important to remember that Burning Man is free once you're inside of it, but you have to buy an expensive ticket to go. All right, there. Very last question, Lydia, all the way in the back. Thank you very much. My name is Joy Song. I'm a graduate of another school, um, which is equally good. As, uh, <laughs> and what is that school? It's at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. Excellent. So I have a question on users' agreement. Um, Eric, you just mentioned about the power of users, which I absolutely agree. Well, um, my question is actually, um, nowadays, it seems that users' agreement primarily protect the, um, the right of, um, of the corporation rather than users. If you're unhappy with um, a particular uh, term in, um, set up in the users' agreement, the only way you can do is to refuse using that kind of service. Um, last year, I remember after Facebook's IPO, um, it, the company has updated its users' agreement and noticed that a lot of my friends actually put on kind of self-disclaimer uh, on their wall saying that they retain, um, retain the copyright of their uh, everything that they posted on Facebook, which was later announced invalid under U.S. jurisdiction. Well, I'm not a legal expert, um, but... I have really just a simple question. Do you think collectively, um, I mean, users should have input in the users' agreement? And as a company, is Google open to that idea? I would argue that we, we have such a process. It's called we get lots of feedback all the time. And the, because we are in this fishbowl that we are, because information, people care a lot about information, we're under enormous pressure from every single group, as you can imagine. And so our user policies and so forth reflect what, what, in our judgment, is the thing that will work the best consistent with our principles. So I don't think we would be willing, for example, to turn over our policies to user vote, because the users might vote in favor of censorship, which we would not be willing to do. And you could imagine that under certain situations. So it may be uncomfortable, but it's still a private corporation, and the private corporation gets to decide within the limits of the law and good judgment how to behave. We do the things we do because we want more users, not fewer. So, it, so one of the guides is if we make some change and our users begin to protest, that would be feedback to us that we're idiots, uh, and we would presumably change it fairly quickly. So in, in those scenarios, I don't worry about that because there's so much feedback coming into it, and our incentives are to add you, not delete you. Right? We, we want you to be happy. If you are unhappy, we have a problem, because our whole model depends on having an increasingly larger number of end users who use our services and, I say, participate in our advertising business. So in addition to being swell and wonderful guys, right, who have great principles and we love ourselves, um, you have another, sorry, that was a little facetiousness. Um, in the age of Twitter, you actually have to put the disclaimer ahead of time so you don't get misquoted. Say pound joke. Pound joke? Yeah. Pound joke, is that what you do? Yeah. No, I'm going to do it after this. You are? Yeah. Okay, well, in any case, uh, the, the serious answer is we have goal alignment because the principles of the company are clear, we've written them down, and even if we violated our principles, they, they are pro-consumer because we want more consumers. Okay. 
Um, sadly, although our digital traces last forever, all good things must come to an end in this uh, non-virtual reality. Um, let me ask you all to give a chance for Eric and Jared, our guests, to be able to exit from the side without mobbing them so that they're able to get out of the room, even though you think they're rock stars. And um, please this join me. This is a great event. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I can see why the LSE has got the global reputation. Thank you guys so much thank for spending so much so time. So thank you. Thank you.